0: It's gonna
1: have the news it is monday october 14th it is indigenous people's day uh my sister who lives not in california messaged me the other day to ask if i had columbus day off and i had to do a check of like what is columbus day Didn't did you remember. know
0: there was a story in the new york times about how it was added as a holiday for Italian Americans. Yeah. To like make them feel welcome. That was
1: a big thing here too yeah. when we were getting rid of it was Joe Buscaino as a city council member for the fifteenth district covering the Harvard did not want to do that because it was seen as disrespectful to Italian Americans. This is LA podcast. I'm Scott Fraser.
0: This is not a discussion of <laughs> <laughs> We have United Alyssa States. Walker
1: here. Hayes is out of town right now. But earlier this week, Hayes and I did make the trip to the LA Times's downtown LA Bureau to talk to Ben Oreskes and Doug Smith, two reporters there who have a new story out about the underreported incidence rates of mental illness uh, and substance uh, use disorders in the homeless population in LA. That's going to be at the end of this show. It was a fantastic conversation about what it means for providing care to the homeless people who live here so stick around for that but first we also have a ton of big news that happened this current week you know people always ask like in california how do you tell when the seasons change without the leaves changing color and i'm like how do you know when it's october without a disappointing dodgers loss (laughs)
0: Oh, it came early this year, though. And the disappointing Dodgers loss came a little bit earlier. But it earlier still came in October.
1: And, uh, and the city being on fire. Those are, like, if you think about it. It
0: happened, like, the same day, pretty that's, much, right? That's yeah. what
1: October is to me. Before we get into the fires, do you have a story that you want to share?
0: Well, I did just want to talk about a trip I took. I went to Raleigh, North Carolina, last week to speak. That's why I wasn't around. Mm-hmm. Um just speak at a great conference that was put together about, you know, the region of the Southeast region and looking at climate change and transportation and innovation and all this stuff that we always talk about all the time. And it was just really great to see a city that is growing, that mm-hmm. seems to be doing a lot of the right things. And I, my talk was about, like I was coming from the future to warn them about, <laughs>
1: <Certain> <laughs> problems like dangers different. in their path.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, and some good things too, but it was really great to talk to just talk to people who were really invested in in making a difference and had this really good grasp on Engagement and inclusion, and just making a city that works for everyone. Yeah. So I was very inspired being there.
1: What are the what are the warnings that LA has <laughs> for Raleigh? I'm I'm very interested in this. Well,
0: mostly I talked about transportation because I think well, I followed a climate scientist, uh, which was super exciting for me to be the second person to speak after a scientist like giving all the data, and then right. i was like, and then here's what we can do about it get rid of cars. And so it was, it was really great to have all the science to back up what he was talking about. And then I got to kind of be the second act. And then a person from Sidewalk Labs actually spoke about a lot of the ideas that they're already starting to deploy in Toronto. So it was actually, I was a a good like middle person to be in this three person conversation. And I talked a lot about, you know, bus lanes, you know, (laughs) (laughs) weren't they? Yeah.
1: weren't they like one of the cities that had like a big light rail plan that was like one of those Koch brothers opposed? Yes,
0: it w- well, it was like referendum. Duke. Duke University was who killed oh, it, it. Duke, and then remember right. like all the climate scientists and scientists at Duke were like, "This is a horrible idea. Yeah. Let us show you why." And yeah, you you drive everywhere there, obviously, and you just see the sprawl just going out in these concentric rings from the middle of the yeah. city. So. They they're aware of these yeah. problems, but again, we've built a car-dependent culture, and it's going to be really hard for people who work to change the way they work or get access to their jobs. So they're determined to to fix it. So yeah,
1: well, I mean, as LA can attest to, knowing is is not quite half the battle. That was <laughs> that was not really accurate when we were told that when we were younger. Um, awareness won't really get you there. Um, my for myself, I think I I go through this thing every. I'm actually really curious what our Listeners have to say about the the fire season. If you have a story about this, I would love to hear it. Please send it to me on Twitter. I'm always going through this thing where like I either think that I'm getting sick for like an entire oh, yeah. full day, you can feel it, or like you know, like I was just trying to do very menial things, walking to this interview, for example, that Hayes and I were were doing downtown, and you just kind of like feel like you're nose is on fire your head is maybe like going to collapse and i get on like the, the
0: post nasal drip that gets like <laughs> thicker and thicker and then all of a sudden my eyes start burning and i have to take my contacts out and then i check like the air quality thing i'm like oh it went over 100 makes yeah. sense yeah
1: so i don't know I, I i've spent most of the week trying to just hide away inside and that is even kind of like an imperfect solution because your windows are open if you're I trying imagine, to run a yeah. fan or anything now have like two,
0: that now throw two children in Two children small-
1: <laughs> You're like literally chasing kids we went to some museums.
0: Around. Yeah, you have oh. to. Oh my
1: God. So anyway, yeah. Send me your, I didn't know there was a fire until I realized I couldn't breathe stories. I'm, I'm very interested in them. Let's talk about this Saddle Ridge fire. Of course, one of the, the biggest pieces of news nationally about California over the past week has been... The the fire danger in Northern California that was caused by the the Santa Ana winds is it even Santa Ana winds up there? It's just dry dry just winds. winds and yeah dry conditions. I uh, I hardly but they have, have
0: a different name for another they, one up there, right? Don't they have some yeah. some local? As with all things NorCal, like, North the, Cal, like I the Berkeley Screamer myself. or something like that. The Berkeley Screamer I just came up with that. I, I like know. that.
1: That's good. <laughs> um, and it also that, sounds like a serial killer. Though. And that's the name now. <laughs> <So> <laughs> the Berkeley Screamer was in town. And so PG&E, the, the largest utility up in the northern part of the state, almost covering like half of the state geographically, they shut off power to millions of people. And then this was the uh, preventative measures that they they told people that they were going to do in advance in order to prevent dry conditions and, and dangerous winds, sparking wildfires such as the, the campfire, the most, danger, uh, the most deadly fire in the state's history last year, which consumed the town of Paradise. When they did that, though, it got a lot of news coverage, both because of the way it was rolled out, uh, mismanaged communication, a New York Times story that came out said that they were not even able to provide the state with updates as to what was happening. And only like a couple of days after this started, we had our own fire down here, the Saddle Ridge fire. Can you talk a bit about like where it was and, and what happened and everything?
0: Yeah, I think the two things that were interesting was exactly what you're saying. Watching from a national perspective that, and, and trying to cover it at curb. So we have you know our San Francisco bureau yeah. who is get trying to do exactly what you said, get information. Like, will this tunnel be open tomorrow? And then at the last minute, they're like, Oh yeah, we just thought we could maybe put some generators there and try to open. I mean, they had a year right to plan for this right and to do a huge public campaign I mean I just can't even I, can, I could not believe well like maybe I could believe it but you just you couldn't believe that people's literally people's lives are affected and they think one person might have died when his oxygen was turned off that's what his family said right. it was like 12 minutes after the power went out or something and the cost to the region, they said over two billion, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's basically like we had another disaster. Yeah. I mean, that's how we count them in, in billion dollars—the billion-dollar disaster index that comes out every year that you know from the government. And so basically, we've lost that much money with with this botched operation. But I guess since we didn't have a fire.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were first, some small the, fires. If the, but... the if if the two alternatives are campfire, you know, like ninety billion dollars in damage right. or two billion dollars in lost economic output, but like you also would hope that there are other alternatives. Yeah,
0: well, <laughs> yeah. So I think then looking, yeah. a really good model is to look at the Saddle Ridge fire, which sprung up in an area where they talked about maybe turning the power off, but they had not turned the power off. So that's something, one thing. And then in a region in the part of the city that has burned several times over the yeah. last decade, some of the exact same places have burned in the Serra fire. There was another one too. Do oh, you remember these really big ones and the same area where we had the Porter Ranch, the Aliso Canyon gas explosion. Yeah. So we have like fossil fuel upon fossil yeah. fuel So what,
1: let's <laughs> talk about this. What what parts of town were burnt in the Saddle Ridge fire? So
0: we were just looking at the very northern edge of Los Angeles. So this is where like the 5, the 14, the 210 all come together. So it's like Silmar, Porter Ranch and Granada Hills, I think were the most affected. And they most of those places were evacuated. And the freeways were closed for an entire day, I think, in both directions. Mm-hmm. So people who were trying to come down here, I heard people going like all the way to the one, or all yep. the way around, like you know Angeles National Forest. I mean, it was intense as far as if you lived
1: in like the Antelope Valley or something like that. Yeah, or even like, like, like Santa no Clarita. To to the, I don't know how you really. Yeah, you would basin, have had it. Yeah. It
0: would be very. They were. They started to escort people through, but yes, very disruptive and very you know fast moving for at least one night. But right. then it only really burned about. 7,500 acres, and they only lost 31 structures. I think that all that information has held until we're recording this. So it could have been much worse. And, you know, it's great that we have addressed this problem. But again, we have another bigger problem, which is do we just keep defending? These homes that are being built in a place that is clearly dangerous right. and also next to, you know, a natural gas facility.
1: <laughs> and, and it just it seems like we're going to go through the same. Yeah, the, the natural. That that to me was like this, the, the thing that was if you were watching the news coverage of this, I believe it was Thursday night. Was that? Is that it right? It started at
0: nine o'clock Thursday night.
1: So if you were like watching the news coverage as it came out here that the winds picked up. Late at night, the fire spread very quickly.
0: 800 acres per hour or something like that. Yeah, that was really fast.
1: And it moves right up to, as you mentioned, the Porter Ranch, the Aliso Canyon Natural Gas Facility, which very recently played a central role in one of the worst ecological disasters in the country's history. That, That major rupture that just was like spilling all of these hundreds of thousands of tons of natural gas into the, into the air. So then we have a fire approaching right there. They shut off power at the facility, watching everything come out. It felt like there, there was a very scary moment there where it seemed like things could get very bad, very fast. Um, So County Fire obviously did an amazing job working to prevent the worst possible outcomes there. SoCal Edison, as we mentioned, didn't, have a shutoff in place at this particular location reporting from the The Times seems to indicate that their equipment might have been involved in sparking this fire at least that's what a couple of eyewitness reports so far say what do you think what do you, like what do you think about the role of soCal Edison in terms of like the the shutoff in general like when and where should they be doing this how right. concerned should they I be mean,
0: yeah do you we I guess we just don't really know how effective it could or could not have been. you. It's one of those things that you are making this decision, but you're, there's a lot of trade-offs as we talked about. I think what is interesting to look at when you look at the causes of these fires, right? And you look at just the statistics and yes, some of them are from, you know, transmission towers or, you know, sparks on just even smaller lines, but then you really just have to think about the overall cause is just human presence. right? So yes, we should Make our infrastructure more resilient and we should have microgrids and distributed solar and better batteries. You know, we should have all that stuff, but also, do we want people living in some place like this? And mm-hmm. it, we can talk about it now because I think one person died, which was very tragic, but it was just from a heart attack. He went into cardiac arrest when he was talking to the police that had like started to get him out of his house, which is tragic, but we only had one person die. But we're planning these communities now. Yeah like Tejon Ranch and all these other places that are far flung from our city. And yes, they said they're going to add solar and do all these things, but the presence of people yeah. is the problem, putting yeah. the people there.
1: So we're talking about like Tejon Ranch, which we've talked about on the show before, which is up near the, the border, the Kern County border at the far north end of the county. These kind of sprawling developments that seem from an ecological perspective, like extremely unwise, even not... Considering the fire risk, but now you really have to consider the fire risk because it's only getting worse. But yeah, so like these communities that we're continuing to build, those are the kind of places where it should be as easy as it gets to say, no, we're not going to continue to make the same mistakes that we've made in the past. It's harder to say of like incumbent residents and homeowners, at least politically speaking. Yeah. You can't live here going forward. But that also feels like something that we are rapidly arriving right. to. So they're
0: going to redraw these maps, right? For the city. This is something that's been talked about too. We have the, you know, the wildland urban interface and then we have the very high severity risk zones for fires. So we're looking at, Two things, you know, one is where the danger is and where the danger is going to get worse, knowing what we know about yeah. how the climate has changed is going to continue to change. So we're, we're going to redraw these maps. And for some of it, it's evacuation related or parking related. You know, it's always a red flag day, things like that. But some of it will need to be, are we going to offer buyouts to people? Are we going to, you know, make the policies that... Could prevent uh, this catastrophic fire. This one wasn't the one, but it could be next month. It could be next year that comes just tearing through the middle of the city.
1: I mean, like the the state has the ability to like do do, like eminent domain, right? Like and they can buy people out, but.
0: We should start by, like, the Hollywood sign with all the, the neighbors there. They, it's oh my it's God. too dangerous for them to live there I, anyway. I love
1: that. <laughs> also, I mean, if you think about it, it would be really inconvenient to live there with all the traffic trying right. to get so up to the so we might as route. well
0: just... They <laughs> there was a great story on curved about that, which is not related to fires, <laughs> but Adrian Gl- Glick Kudler, like, had this amazing story where we should take people's land back.
1: I I, I do feel like that is kind of the direction that we're we should be heading it does feel like we're in there there are certain policy areas where the data so like we talked about housing and and rent control and there are a lot of things where the the data just isn't there we don't know necessarily how individual landlords are using or not using the property that they own but this is kind of an area and most climate related things and transportation related things are the same way where we have the data and it's actually just the political action that is lagging behind like you said we have mapping about where the the wilderness urban interface exists where climate change is exacerbating fire risk we know a lot about the liabilities that exist in these areas and we just have really not had the political leadership to say these people are putting themselves in danger and they're also putting the general public in danger by continuing to have houses in places that really can't support uh, like a yes. real human urban And then you have
0: the situation in Malibu. So we're coming up to the one year anniversary of the Woolsey fire, which was, it was at the same time as the campfire in November. And you have leadership in Malibu that basically told everyone that they could just rebuild their house however they want. And the quote was exactly like, there might be a good time to make changes, but we also just want to let people, you know, get back home. So. Yep. Is there a real inability to deal with this? At the same local level? same
1: thing that you heard after Santa Rosa, after the fire there. Same thing that you heard in Paradise. Uh, politicians, especially local politicians, are I think naturally going to have a very hard time looking their constituents in the eye and saying like, "You can't." Like you just went through this tragedy, and also you can't live here anymore. There's like a strong desire to allow people to rebuild what they had, but um, that's not tenable. And, and at a certain point, it becomes the responsibility of the state to step in and, and tell the local governments that they can't do that anymore. And um, I think that is probably where we're headed. But who knows, really? Uh, <laughs> like that's just kind of feels optimistic a little bit. I do want to talk about the like just the shutoffs briefly, just because like I, I've seen a lot of what I would consider fairly contrarian takes online that are like, Shutoffs are good, actually. Who uh, said that? Know, a lot of people do. But so, the, 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 but
0: like, a, from a preventative from a fire preventative, measure, or from a
1: preventative standpoint, and I, I like. On the one hand, I I think I understand where that impulse is coming from, and and people are using the the evidence of SoCal Edison having done shutoffs in specific areas, uh, but not in the Saddle Ranch fire area, as evidence that they are a good idea and they work to prevent fires. However, I think that that's kind of a, uh, I think that's miscasting what actually happened. I think that if you think about it, what the Saddle Ranch fire actually shows is that shutoffs are inherently going to be a gamble. We're talking about sparks, embers, and wind. Like it's it's inherently a gamble unless you're shutting off all power for your entire service area every time there's dry conditions and wind, which is going to be A lot.
0: Yeah. And they were saying the embers were traveling a mile, right? So think about that. You could have the foresight to shut something down, but then you've got wind and it crossed the five freeway. No problem. It had all these, you know, all these barriers and things that you would think would not act as a natural fire break. And the embers just, just blow and it's too dry.
1: There are, there are cases in which I think you can say that a shutoff would prevent a fire from starting a very dangerous fire from starting. However, I think there's not really a case to be made as far as I can see to say that like people should be grateful for the shutoffs <laughs> or, or that it is, you know, it's, it's a very imprecise instrument from which to go about fire prevention. And if anything, it should be encouraging us to have conversations about how that can actually be managed at the state level going forward. Because when we're talking about things like the campfire, 90 billion dollar disasters, that merits a state response,
0: well, it's funny because the governor he he said it was kind of as all of his statements are. you had to kind of li- listen to it and read it a few yeah. times to be like, what did he actually mean? But he did say something like, this isn't about climate change. This is about you know PG and E or whatever. Yep. And it actually is about climate. It is change, about
2: climate change, but
0: it also is about like you said, standing up and taking some kind of initiative, not just like taking on the greedy corporation, because it's very much it's a very much bigger deal than that.
1: I, it, and it should be about it should be about state response. It should be about PG&E, but it, you can't, like, you can't separate all of those things. There's not, like, a, it's not politically meaningful to separate them, I think. Let's talk about Gavin Newsom, though. <laughs> yeah.
0: He had a week of ups and downs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Let's talk about one of his downs. So uh, today, I, I guess last night, Saturday night. Like I think
0: it was actually, like, this morning at, like, 12.05. He signs the, he vetoes the bills, like, In the dead in the of t- night. <laughs>
1: Gavin Newsom signed and vetoed a bunch of bills. I believe that his last day to actually sign things might be today, Sunday. uh, So yesterday, as you're listening to this, Um, one of the bills that he uh, vetoed got a lot of attention online, including from angry people like myself. And it was Senate Bill 127, a product of Scott Wiener's office out of San Francisco. This was a bill that was intended to overcome some real stonewalling by Caltrans, the, the State Department of Transportation, in the areas of livable streets, complete streets, um, any kind of infrastructure that would improve safety and mobility for people who are not getting around in a car, basically. So what SB 127 did was it took the inventory of state routes, these are uh, for uh, in a lot of cases, these are local streets, think Santa Monica Boulevard, Lakewood Boulevard, Hawthorne Boulevard. they're they're
0: Lincoln Boulevard. Lincoln right?
1: Boulevard, yeah, Pacific Coast Highway. They are streets that have a designation of being part of the state highway routes, which means that they're owned by the state and and maintained by the state. but they are for all intents and purposes, local arterial streets that are part of um, like just residential communities. So it took that inventory and it said anytime that Caltrans was going to repave something or do any kind of capital project on these streets, they would have to complete streets improvements like bike lanes, sidewalk improvements, and just like making it easier for people to bike, walk and otherwise get around without a car on the streets that Caltrans owns. Caltrans did not really like this suggestion. Mm. Um, can you talk a bit about like the the Caltrans response and how it ended up with Gavin Newsom vetoing this?
0: So what Caltrans did is, in, they they said yes, we agree. We want to make streets safer. We want to you know increase multimodal access. But they gave an estimate that it would cost four point five million per mile
1: right. to do these things. Right. Right. So that clearly makes no sense, right? We're talking about things like paint <laughs> like, <laughs> that doesn't make sense and actually if you if you, uh, if you take the the view that Scott Weiner does in in writing this bill and I, I think that this is well founded one of the reasons to do something like an SB127 is to actually reduce the cost of these projects because instead of having it be a separate project with separate study costs and separate, outreach costs and separate consultant costs, you're doing it as part of the repaving project that you're already doing. So this is a, a just really a kind of a, a disgraceful example of Caltrans trying to stop these things from happening. They want to keep their authority to, to do projects the way that they like doing them, which basically means widening roads a lot and never considering anybody who's not in a car. And And that shouldn't be acceptable. Gavin Newsom, it turns out, apparently bought everything that Caltrans gave as an excuse for why this was a bad idea was in some way, shape or form regurgitated in his veto message. And you said that you felt like he fell for it. Yeah,
0: I feel like they tried to convince him that it would it would be expensive or somehow not worth the money when you could just cancel a few, you know lane additions to a few highway projects up and down the state right. and you could recover any cost but it really wouldn't be much more money than whatever you're going to do to repave a few freeways going through the middle of our city on surface streets.
1: Let's let's talk about his message because I I was I was really mad reading this. So Gavin Newsom says This bill creates a process to require the Department of Transportation to add complete streets elements to certain projects on state highways, dot, dot, dot. This bill creates a prescriptive and costly approach to achieve these objectives. So he says that he has put out an executive order of his own, which does all of these same things. And also the new leadership that he's put in place at Caltrans. Is going to take care of anything that SB one two seven would have done without being prescriptive or costly? Do you buy that?
0: There is some buzz around the new appointee, Toks Amishakin. I hope I said that right. He comes from bike advocacy, walking advocacy. Like he knows a lot about active transportation. So maybe this is true. But again, this is Caltrans we're dealing with that is not to be it's, trusted it, on these. It issues.
1: is troubling to me because what I what I see is. The the governor saying that he is vetoing this because it is prescriptive, which I don't see as a problem. If anything, that's a benefit. The the What we know about Caltrans is that they don't do these things and they don't consider them unless they're forced to consider them. The griping and grumbling from Caltrans's transportation engineers about not being able to do projects the way that they know how to do them is, is kind of a sign that something good is happening because... The way that we've known Caltrans for the past 60, 70 years in this state is that they are going to come in, they're going to turn everything into a freeway, and then they're gonna leave. And that's like, that is not a good use of state resources. It shouldn't be an acceptable outcome for local governments. And so like the, the prescriptive approach of having the legislature tell them, this is exactly what you need to do. You need to put bike and pedestrian infrastructure on a level playing field with car infrastructure when you're going out and spending money is in some ways just it has to be told to them. It has to be told to them from a position of higher authority. So Gavin Newsom has really stepped in it, in my opinion. He is but putting, on the other
0: hand, we do have, as we talked about before, yeah. new transportation commissioners and True. a hopeful allegiance between the Transportation Commission and the Air Resources Board. So we do have maybe for the first time these conversations could start happening where we are considering, you know, not just complete streets, but also like the equity component that we've been talking about as far as, you know, freeways through the middle of cities. And, you know, maybe there's something where we, you know, Caltrans gives these places back to the cities and says, here's the money, like fix them. Like you can take care of them now the way that you, well, hopefully you can trust the local governments I, too. Well, I but... want to
1: say, yeah, I want to say, this is something local governments are always saying. Local control is so important. Yeah. Sacramento shouldn't be doing, yeah, you know, telling us what to do, et cetera. Of course, SB 127 only would have affected the specific state routes, but we have so many streets that are in desperate need of improvements in Los Angeles. LA City could do something very similar to this. They should. Yeah, They could put something in place that said, When the Bureau of Street Services, when the Bureau of Engineering, like when any of these groups goes out there and is doing resurfacing or whatever, they put in bike lanes. They repair sidewalks. Yeah, they They, don't repair
0: the sidewalks at the same time either. If they repave something, the sidewalks don't get fixed at the same time. (laughs) They
1: put in street lighting. They put in in street trees. There are no end to the amount of improvements that we could make if we were doing it at the same time as we're sending people out there just to like pave a street and have everything remain the same. The city
0: could do that. Yeah, let's demand to get let's... those back and make and make that part of our policy.
1: If they want to show that they're they're capable of doing everything that Sacramento is uh, forcing them to do, then let's let's see some action on that. What do we have next?
0: Last thing we we're going to talk about before we go into to your interview is another LA Times investigation where Cindy Chang and Ben Poston looked at these LAPD searches that they're doing, where they're just pulling people over randomly and looking at people's vehicles, and they were searching. Blacks and Latinos more, of course, but it turned out that people that they pulled over and investigated who were white were more likely to have things that they shouldn't have or be committing crimes. So in response to that, just recently, I think today, or I don't know when they announced it, but our LAPD chief, Michael Moore, said that they are going to stop doing this, which I can't believe they were had ever started doing this. It's but- like,
1: this is, this is something that is baffling to me. So we're, we're like- when we're talking about random stops, the LAPD is saying that they, or the Times found, I guess the, the police didn't say this of their own volition. Um, they were they were stopping black drivers at a rate like four or five times higher than the rate at which they stopped white drivers, even though white drivers were found to have committed some crime more frequently than than black drivers were. What I'm so confused about is how is this? A valid and or legal approach to policing. I understand why the LAPD would do it because they like have a hit, a really like deep cultural history of not caring about civil rights or um, constitutional and like, policing. But
0: I, yeah, I couldn't understand like how you decide who you're stopping and how you're oh, it's totally
1: random. Yeah. Alyssa. I mean, yeah,
0: but that's <laughs> so right. So they're they're saying it's random, and I don't even know. I guess you're also checking for
1: it's not for, random. It. It's, it's not, I mean, <laughs> LAP, how
0: could you ever claim it's random? Is what I'm saying. Like, LA, how could you LAPD ever say police
1: that? officers are perfect instruments for just generating random stops, like
0: randomly in certain parts of town. This you know, isn't. Just, this is
1: not a. It this, it first can't of all, be random. we know that these traffic stops are dangerous. They're dangerous for drivers, particularly for Black drivers. They're also dangerous for police. So we are, as a city, putting—we're—we're we're creating a large number of these interactions that never have to happen by saying, even though we have no real suspicion that there, that a crime is being committed, we're just gonna check it out. We're just gonna roll the dice and see what happens. This is kind of like stop and frisk for drivers.
0: Yeah, I mean that's exactly what it is. And and you said like the data can't back it up, and they did say the chief Moore said. For 100 cars stopped, they get one arrest. Yeah. I can't Michael
1: even... <laughs> Moore is the data guy, so I mean... <laughs>
0: but like in what, what program, in what world do you is have a 1% right? success rate and, 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 think, still and keep on doing, doing it? Yeah. yeah,
1: still doing it. This is the thing where to me, like, like I was saying, it doesn't surprise me that the LAPD has been doing this. What surprises me to some extent is that it required an LA Times investigation for politicians and the upper echelons of the LAPD brass to publicly recognize that this is a failing program and that it is not something that should validly be a use of police time, energy or, or whatever. Like it, it makes no sense even before you get to the whole like violating the Constitution. Oh, then. yeah.
0: And did they? that's the other thing. They said they have 200 officers dedicated to this. Like
1: De- dedicated to random <laughs> It's like and
0: now they'll do other things. <laughs> so it's like
1: Collect okay, unemployment. Great. Like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe they'll do something. I, it was just a baffling thing and so great to see the LA Times, you know, continuing to push This is a, push a, these. a
1: phenomenal investigation. Uh like you said, Ben Poston and um uh Cindy Chang were on top of this story. But like this is the kind of honestly, like if the, if the L.A. Sheriff's Department didn't exist, <laughs> if the Sheriff's Department didn't exist, they had their own racial profiling scandal. Actually, that is still currently ongoing uh, and I think is now under investigation by the FBI. If the Sheriff's Department didn't exist, this would be a huge black eye right. for L.A. It's only one Law of our force. least...
0: <laughs> One of our least This, is, big but this problems. is a
1: really big deal. We have uh, like 99 out of 100 innocent Angelinos just being stopped and harassed by police for no reason. Uh, is one of the things that constantly valid. I mean, we we are in constant need of validation, apparently, as a society of what Black folks say about police violence and abusive power. So this is yet another. Piece of validation to add to the pile. It's um, it's something that should be taken seriously, and I I don't know like if Michael Moore saying the d- data doesn't back up this practice is quite good God, enough.
0: Saying yeah, the more obvious unconstitutional <laughs> part of this process. Wow! Just wow.
1: Uh, we want to briefly touch on uh, a motion that we we mentioned a couple weeks ago. So Mike Bonin, city council member and also Metro director, did put out a motion to get Expo sped up. This is the signal preemption that we've been talking about on here. Just to say, like that, what that would basically mean is at each of the thirty or so signalized intersections where Expo currently has to stop and wait for car traffic they would be allowing trains to pass through automatically. That's sort of what it sounds like. I Honestly, I read Bonin's motion, and the language in there is not as tight as I would like. <laughs> uh, it kind of it says right. it, they, he wants LADOT to maximize the priority mm. for mm. expo line trains, which, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I checked in on this, but if I'm not mistaken, LADOT has kind of said... They're already maximizing it. Yeah. So I'm a little bit nervous that they will just be like, well, job complete. We don't have to do anything. Mm. Um, but the goal is definitely to get at the expo line trains to not have to stop as much at those street running uh, red lights. So hopefully something comes of that 60 days. They're supposed to report back on the specific things that they did. That's a good sign. 120 days, they're supposed to come back and say how at SAC, the, um, the city control system for signalized intersections can be changed to start taking into account people on foot, people walking, or people walking, people biking, and people on trains better. That seems good. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think about this motion? I'm 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 a little bit torn. I I'm just like crossing my fingers.
0: I'm happy to hear so many great responses to the crowding and the bad service that people are experiencing on the expo so it's great to hear after first saying that they heard no complaints for changing yeah. the service, that service is being changed and that we're addressing these other problems. But yeah, I mean, again, when the regional connector is done and I don't know, is it going to really going to be next? Not it's not next year right now. It's uh, early 21 20, now I'm or is it
1: pretty sure it's 2022 okay. at this point? Well, we'll
0: all be dead by then. So. <laughs> but again, like this halfway through Trump's second idea term. that <laughs> we're going to have this you know, very efficient way of getting from one part of the city to another, supposedly, mm-hmm. that is still going to be experiencing these problems. I mean, we have to fix this now. Or else.
3: And
1: this only like this motion specifically applies to uh, the expo line. This doesn't apply to the right. gold line, right. which I think in the city of L.A., the gold line avoids a lot of the same issues that, that the Expo line does. But on the east side segment, it definitely yes, does. Yes, it's running
0: that a lot more. Yeah, yeah, in traffic. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, we need to look at this. It's the same thing as the complete streets bill being vetoed, right? It's like, what is the priority for us? What it's, This is no longer the priority is to make sure that cars can go as fast as they can wherever they want. It is a different world and we are taking control of it right now.
1: We are going to get into our interview. We have Benjamin Oreskes and Doug Smith, and this is live from the downtown LA Times Bureau. Thank you for listening.
2: On location at the LA Times' downtown foreign bureau, (laughs) hear the sounds of Voices bouncing off wood and plaster. This and the is, streets. Yes, and, this, and the streets of downtown LA. We are joined by Doug Smith and Ben Oreskes at the LA, time, LA Times Reporters. Doug, you are primarily a data reporter.
3: Is that right? I've been the head of our data desk uh, for 10 years. And since that time, I just have gone back to uh, general assignment reporting. But I'm attracted to stories that have data elements.
2: And Ben, uh, you're on the homelessness
4: beat for the last few months. Yeah, I had been doing a newsletter and while doing that was also writing about what's going on and this is the big thing that's going on. So I decided to kind of focus on that once other reinforcements came in uh, to do the newsletter.
2: You two have teamed up to do a story basically about how data around homelessness has been produced. By city authorities talk about this is a story that has obviously made a lot of waves around the city homelessness is probably the biggest issue that we're facing right now talk about your findings in this story
3: so the findings relate to a demographic survey that's taken annually by LASA which is the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority it's a city county joint powers authority so it's neither city nor county it's a uh, an agency that was created to manage federal homeless monies and to uh, put out rfps and give contracts for homeless services and one of its responsibilities is to conduct an annual count and that's the the the, the point in time count that's become sort of famous in the, in the past few years as as the uh, people have watched the numbers go up mostly and maybe down right. a little bit uh, so as part of that they do a demographic survey a quite large survey uh, in which they interview 4000 people uh, across Los Angeles County. Uh, and there's a uh, extensive questionnaire with about 58 uh, questions. Uh, they, they publish some uh, information from that uh, annually. And um, I, I became interested in it last year and, and did some analysis of the 2018 survey. And in, in the course of that, I noticed that there were um, questions in the survey that, that related to mental illness, to substance abuse, uh, to health issues and other physical disabilities, traumatic brain injury, PTSD, and when I sort of recounted all of the surveys, I noticed that they weren't adding up to the numbers that LASA was publishing. So I began to ask, why was that, and uh, what would happen if we counted those? And I saw that, that if, I, if I put in everything that seemed to be an indication of, of one of those, what we, I guess, generally call impairments, that the numbers would be a lot higher than than we were hearing from LASA. So by the time I made that observation, it was like already this year, and and, and I didn't think that it was a, a good time to to do a story because we would soon have a a, a, a new survey coming out, and so mm-hmm. I waited. And when when the survey was out, I I filed a, a public records request for the survey responses, which is it's a database that that has the answers to all 58 questions for the 4,000 people.
4: And I just want to add one thing: the purpose of this questionnaire. It's probably useful for your listeners to understand, like the point in time count is an estimate Mm -hmm. and to create the multipliers, the extrapolation. So when all these people go out looking for tents, looking for RVs, they're not counting people, they're counting cars or tents. Mm -hmm. And then they do math using this questionnaire. So that is the purpose of it. But it also is an incredibly rich kind of insight into how people live on the streets which right. is there's non- a lot
1: of qualitative information in there. Yes, exactly. so the,
4: the initial count we've talked about uh, like I went out
2: on it they don't have you interact with anybody that uh, you, you try to get a rough estimate and then a group of Caseworkers, mostly, I, I think, uh, affiliated with USC, goes out and has conversations with people, and that's the subset of four thousand people that they engage with to create an estimate. Exactly. Correct? Yeah.
3: Yes, and and I didn't know we were going to get into the multipliers, but since, 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 <laughs> we're since, in since, the weeds, baby. Since <laughs> Ben brought it up, my my, my initial uh, sort of uh, skepticism about the way Lasso was representing the numbers really occurred in the 2018 count when Lasso said the number was down by three percent. They later modified that to four percent. Mm-hmm. And nobody that I knew thought the number was down by 4%. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I, I asked them about the multipliers, and it, ter- it turns out that uh, uh, LASA had switched contracts from the University of North Carolina to mm-hmm. the University of Southern California. And in the course of that, they had changed the multipliers. And legitimately, they changed the multipliers because the survey came up with different numbers, and, it's a, and, and they're just doing what the survey tells them to do. But... Had they, u- had they used had they used the multipliers consistently over the two years, it would have shown what was much more likely to have happened, which is that the the rate of increase had slowed down, but it was still an increase. An increase. Mm-hmm. And then with the gigantic increase this year, yeah. that just looking back, that just makes so much more sense. Yeah. So I was, you know, I'm already be aware that that the the sort of at the the political level, Lhasa was ha- had a habit of, of providing the best interpretation on their numbers. And, and, and that's so. kind
1: of where the incentives point for an agency like LASA when you're presenting this uh, data to the public every year that's as, right. as, as the uh, city-county JPA does. I think it's, it's really important to, to note when, when you actually ran through these numbers, uh, when you and ben, ben ran through these numbers yourselves, you put in your article that you came up with a difference of like over 100% in terms of the number of people who were dealing with impairments and who were also living on the street. Yeah, I can get into the specifics
2: a little bit. We mostly talked about this count in terms of the 16% increase that it showed in homelessness in the city of LA, 12% in the county. But you found a discrepancy between the percent of people who were experiencing mental illness, substance abuse, a poor health, or a physical disability. A losses count had said that that figure was 29%. And you found it to be 67%.
3: Specifically, the 29% was the percent of those who, relating specifically to mental illness or substance abuse. Okay. Yes. Or, or, as they say, substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. I've been uh, corrected on that. Okay. Either or. And they said that mm-hmm. that number was only twenty nine percent. We found it to be sixty seven percent.
2: Okay. I do have one question about those numbers. You say a few times in the article that your figures are applied to the a population of unsheltered yes, people who are homeless. That's, that's correct. That's seventy five percent estimated of the like the people who are homeless in Los Angeles. Does the twenty nine percent figure that LASA is referring to, is that the entire population? So that like does that include the sheltered people who are homeless?
3: Uh, you know, one of my problems with the way they present the information is you can't tell
4: it's confusing. Okay. We had a ton of trouble. I mean, that's why we stick so closely to their language in mm-hmm. the story, because sometimes they have trouble answering our questions that tend to be pretty pointed, like when it comes to things like you're describing. There. Okay.
3: Yeah, they have a they have a, a publish a table that, that that has columns and you sort of go and, and rows and some of the rows say the sh- sheltered population some unsheltered. It doesn't distinguish that and, for this and, one. And then huh. you, you get down to the mental illness and you can't really tell what group it, it, is is being represented.
2: Okay. So because I can imagine that the sheltered population like might be less disposed to having substance use disorder or mental illness or something like that, but it still wouldn't explain this entire discrepancy. In the
3: analysis, I did my best to replicate mm-hmm. their analysis and... I got numbers that, that were within one percentage point of their numbers, Okay, looking only at the unsheltered population. So mm-hmm. I think their numbers were reflected in the unsheltered population.
4: Just a quick moment to be a hype man for Doug Smith. <laughs> Worked at the LA Times for 49 years, founding data editor, did this all himself, recreated their data analysis, and then did ours. He... Is impressive. He's running circles I am, around I me. am not challenging <laughs> the numbers. I'm no, not saying no, I, but I, I'm,
2: I'm saying I it is barely it. know how to use Excel.
1: It, it is an impressive <laughs> bit of data analysis to, to, to perform to to reperform what Lassa had a team of data scientists working on at, at USC. Yeah. and we actually spoke with somebody who was at some point involved in the, in the the count process. I think it's been it's something that has been well known in almost advocacy circles that when we talk about the point in time count that, that LA County does, even though we do it more frequently than most localities who receive the the federal grant monies that you were talking about at the top, Doug, these are very often going to be best case scenarios and you would expect the actual numbers to, if anything, be worse. I, I think what's kind of surprising to me and probably to a lot of people who have read your, your work is the extent to which that appears to be the case that that these numbers seem to not be, the, the numbers reported in the count, which so many people volunteer in and participate in, seem to be not representative of, of the population at large. Is that, uh, is that a takeaway that you have from this? Does it change the way that you as reporters will look at the the data that gets put out from LASA going forward?
4: I think there's one big thing in what you just said that's really significant, and it kind of animated our discussions as we sort of thought about these stories was The real impetus for the story was one, Doug's deep dive into their work, but also just like what we're hearing from people. Everyone goes out on the street, you walk around downtown, and you just feel the presence of a population that is incredibly vulnerable, very sick. And to a point you made earlier, Hayes, we, we looked a lot at other research around this, and all of it shows that the unsheltered population of homeless people is far sicker, mm-hmm. far more vulnerable than the sheltered population. And uh, we looked at, we referenced a UCLA study that shows exactly that.
2: They came up actually with higher percentages than your analysis. Yeah. Than, On a right?
4: national sample. On a national, national sample, sample. of 65,000, different, a different kind of survey, but a very large sample size. And the numbers are dramatic. And I think for us, that was really the driving force behind it. Trying to, and, and also is why I think the story res- like resonated with people. Yeah. Was like they were like, I, we, we got a lot of responses to our tweets and stuff being like Captain Obvious. <laughs> and, and, the, and I think, yes, but like here we are putting it on the record in a way that is rigorous and substantive and not just trying to stereotype people, but also show like if the numbers are this much higher or if you look at it in a broader way, because uh, what Lhasa did, which we can get into later, is take a much narrower view of who is impaired. It, it shows a need uh, in terms of services, that maybe is not exactly what we're doing. I don't know if you have other things to add, Doug.
3: Yes, I uh, completely. I, I did want to interject a sort of tangential caveat. as uh, data people at USC are highly professional and conscientious, and a, as as fellow data people, I I re- really greatly respect them. And I think what we're seeing is is that they're they're providing information based on what they've been told to do, mm-hmm. and. It goes through then some kind of a political process that we don't understand, but that what we did, is they took the minimum view and we took the maximum view. We said, we're going to throw in everything that uh-huh. could be relevant. And, and so there's no right and wrong number, truly.
2: Let's talk about their response, because you say like correctly that people both on the side of uh, homeless advocacy and homeless criminalization have been saying for a while that the numbers of people with mental illness, substance use disorders were higher than what was being reported. Everyone except basically for the city and county and Lhasa were saying that it's something that they've been pushing for a while, that it's only a small percentage of people who are homeless who are experiencing these issues. Lhasa responded to your numbers not disagreeing with them, but saying that they were f- forced essentially to follow a different uh, standard for what qualified as these issues, is that right? And th- the, the yes. standard was set by the Department of Housing and Urban Development?
3: Their their numbers are all built around uh, HUD's definition of chronically homeless, mm-hmm. which is a, a fairly specific definition w- which requires a, a certain periods of being homeless. And it also requires a, a condition a mental health, a substance uh, use, or a physical health condition of long standing. Mm. And the biggest uh, I- issue was that question of long standing. Uh, so the, uh, LASA is in these deep furrows of reporting to the federal government, which go back 30 years. And it's only been recently that this agency has sort of come under pressure to, uh, to, to relate directly to the public. Mm-hmm. And they just, at this point, aren't very good at it and they they aren't very good at framing what the public needs to know and and, and is looking for. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one
4: example. So on the the questionnaire, there's a question about what do you think are some of the main reasons or conditions that led you to lose your housing? And then there's another question that asks, like, has this been a long-term thing? So you get first asked, What is your health condition? And then you get asked, is this long term? Mm -hmm. They don't count you if you say it's not long term. Mm -hmm. So that's one example of this sort of, it's not an omission, it's a narrower view of it. And that, I'm trying to remember exactly, but that raises the number for certain categories a lot. Mm -hmm. And so if you go through that very systematically, you get these much larger numbers as a result.
2: There's also the issues around like severity, like what is a severe mental illness? I, you know, I can sort of speak to my own experience and bias. I work with a homeless services nonprofit and the amount of depression, anxiety, PTSD that you see on the streets is like extremely widespread. It's not necessarily schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, like uh, conditions that are more visible, but would still qualify by most clinical definitions as mental illness. So to me, and we can get into sort of how this uh, your data was received by different groups. To me, it suggests a more urgency for services, as you were saying, Ben. That like this is a population that is even more vulnerable than the city and county were indicating is going to have more difficulty getting themselves getting them, themselves into housing. And when that housing is built, should probably come with increased services. People that have been advocating for. Criminalization, increased sweeps, conservatorship, like taking people off the streets by force and putting them into care or prison in the case of, of drug offenses, have also seized on this to some degree. Assembly member Mike Gatto put out a, former, former former assembly son. member, thank you. Uh, put out a ballot measure yesterday. Uh, and he referred to this data. And the ballot measure would allow for increased conservatorship, increased sentencing for offenses designed to funnel individuals who are on the street by force into care through the through the prison system. Obviously, you weren't reporting this data with any kind of prescription necessarily, but like talk about what you've been seeing, I guess, as far as I, this I think is all you
3: raised a, a great point. And uh, there are many deficiencies with this data and a lot of them have to do with not being able to differentiate between different forms of, of whether you call it mental illness or trauma, that might require, I mean, that might be suitable for different kinds of responses. And and I, I think that if, for example, the, the definition of serious mental illness that Lhasa uses includes just one sort of general category, serious mental illness, and then depression, and then PTSD. Well we broke out the PTSD and it turns out that was 17% which I thought surprised me mm-hmm. but but it obviously it didn't surprise you I think.
2: That was 17%. 17% of, of, mm. of, of
3: people said that they had uh, experienced PTSD. But that
2: had not necessarily been included that, that, in the 29% It was it, included. It, it was.
3: Yes. So, in terms of both, in terms of both the types of services, the use of let's say board and care homes as opposed to permanent supportive housing, which is a subject that behind the scenes the LA County is actually uh, responding to, but it, but nothing has been said about it publicly. Mm-hmm. Whether PTSD is it, it requires the same kind of response as uh, schizophrenia, I don't know anything about that, but I'm guessing it doesn't. <laughs> and we get no insight from mm-hmm. that in, in this data. You, and, and I would love to do that analysis, but the data is not there to do it.
4: And, and I would add to that, like taking a step back, like there are 17,000 chronically homeless people. I mean, we're talking about at a best case scenario, Prop Triple H is gonna produce seven to 10,000 units of permanent supportive housing. So housing that's meant for the- Did you say supportive housing? Permanent supportive housing. I believe unit.
2: the supportive units are now closer to like 5,300, okay. something y- like
4: that. You know better than me. The point I'm making is that even at their best case scenarios, there's not enough of what they're trying to build to help this population. It doesn't all need to go into there necessarily, but needs very tailored, different services that are unique. And I think part of our hope with putting this out there was that it can spark a conversation not about they don't need housing, right. rest them all, but how do we help the different subpopulations that are out there? and really tailor it so that we're helping them in the most efficient way possible.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. This came out basically at the same time as Ron Galperin's audit of Triple H, where he said that they were not going to reach the 10,000 unit promise of of how the uh, initial $1.2 billion were going to be allocated. But his, like part of his conclusion was to funnel more of the money towards shelters. And with like, like now that we're sort of learning simultaneously that there's, a higher percentage of people experiencing mental illness, substance use disorders than we thought. Shelters, it seems like, would not necessarily be as fitting solution with people uh, for people with these kind of conditions because it's a lot of people living in very close proximity, no privacy whatsoever. It seems like it could
1: create issues. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think what is what is particularly very interesting that that I am learning from you guys, from your for the reporting that you have done, is. When you, when you think about it, just like from a, a standpoint of being somebody who lives in the city and you are maybe aware that this count is something that happens every year, it seems as though the count is going to identify the path that we should take in order to help out the people who are living unsheltered, who are living unhoused in L.A. County. That being said, what we are hearing from you is actually as makes sense. This is this is a program that was developed in response to HUD's requirements for achieving some amount of formula funding. If you think about it, getting formula funding out of a grant program, whatever you need to do to check the boxes to get that money and whatever you actually need to do qualitatively to develop programs to help people who are homeless, those might naturally be very divergent sets of things. So I think the question really that i have is is do you have any indication and and based on like Lhasa's responses to this is there any indication that the city is interested in taking or city or county or Lhasa itself are, are interested in taking more of a leadership role in actually getting the sorts of data out of the count or out of some other data analysis program that would help them determine who is homeless in Los Angeles and what needs to be done to support them. Have they given you like a job offer? <laughs> of this stuff. No,
4: no, but you know, in our story we reference, um, is it Sarah Dusso? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, she has asked for them to work with the California policy. So Sarah Dusso works at Los Angeles. Uh, it, sorry, is yeah. the chair of their commission board. Mm-hmm. I can't remember exactly. Oversight committee. And they... Said sort of not in their defense, but in explaining what's going on. I mean, Lhasa has exploded in size, and there's just like a ton of data that they are bringing in. And people who are very interested and competent in this work are not rushing to work at Lhasa. And I think that they are kind of slowly trying to get their heads around the best way to tell, talk about homelessness with as much texture and nuance. And you know we saw the, they did a youth homeless count last year. So they, they use this defense of we need to kind of subscribe or be defined by HUD, but they do other things that are right. not within HUD's guidelines. So I think I'd take them at their word to some extent that they are, this is on the list of things that they mm-hmm. can look at in more detail, but they haven't yet. So right. that we, that's what we've seen.
2: I have a question, or maybe this is your next article. There's been some evidence in some other counts. I know in Orange County, the official count they did, like other groups have also done counts that have demonstrated that the numbers of people living on the street and who are homeless were much higher than what the official count said. Is there any way in like looking at these numbers, any suggestion uh, that there's any discrepancy between the actual count and, uh, and, and, and what is getting reported?
3: Well, certainly, one of the things that I've brought up year after year with LASA is I don't understand why they continue to report the count down to the last individual <laughs> yes. human digit as if, as if it's uh, never <laughs> a round number, but, but it passes it. I mean,
4: gives this, uh, Doug always use the word implied precision, like yeah, it, in, in it the does. in the it passes it off as gospel in a way that, like people like Peter Lin, who's the executive director who's on leave, like now they talk about it in terms that are very certain and not. Moralistic is my editorial judgment. They, they, they talk about these things as like, this is right, this is wrong. And I think that we hope that they could talk about it with a little more of a, a range, I guess. Mm-hmm.
3: It's a, uh, as you can imagine, it, it's an extremely difficult population to accurately accurately census. And it could be, the, the, the true number could be higher or it could be lower. Uh, and I, I don't know, I think there have been sort of substantive issues about do they count people in the same way school districts do, where they are c- kind of get a handle on people who are, are couch surfing or living with in a friend's home, who might technically be considered homeless, even though they're not living on the street or in a shelter? Those, those are those are certainly issues that are important from a, a you know a context of looking at homelessness as a as a large problem, but I think the it, the, the count uh, of those on the street and in shelters um, it, as Inaccurate as it probably is, it's it's a pretty superhuman effort, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to accept it as being a, a bona fide a, a effort to scale the problem.
2: I'd be interested in, for example, the the count happens in January. You can see the size of encampments grow and shrink over the years. Like how does the time of year, the weather, like things like that affect the numbers? The And the count happens in January everywhere in the country. I imagine, I mean, I'm not sure if it would be harder or easier because homeless people in Chicago, for example, would seek shelter in January. So that might make them easier to count. It also might uh, like them not being on the street might make it harder to But, but count. our count
4: but, is very unique in that to the number you said it early on in our discussion, the 75% unsheltered number just makes it a whole different animal. So if you mm-hmm. look at New York City, for example, they have a very, I mean, their population is larger than ours and is mostly indoors. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think uh, it's like it, it, over 95% yeah, indoors or something. exactly. Yeah. They have a real good sense of who's in the shelters or real good is maybe a step too far, but they really have it, know a, very, a lot about how many people are in their shelter system. So mm-hmm. when you have- or who's all these, getting motel vouchers exactly, like Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and so that adds this whole wrinkle into it. And I think that- For us, I mean, there are these choices that they need to make, they being government, county and city, about the priorities they have, which is this housing first model. And no one is questioning the efficacy of it. It's just not been scaled yet in the way that it needs to be to kind of help all these people. So what do you do in the meantime? And I think that is like the central question that we don't have an answer to. And I think a lot of people don't.
3: And, it's, you know, it's not just a matter of scale. As, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Department of Health Services, uh, this is related to a story that's coming up, so I'm going to be a little vague, but they've started placing people in board and care homes based on their assessment of their level of need being greater than the services that uh, that are available in, in permanent supportive housing settings.
2: And board and care homes, meaning I, I believe those are like it, locked facilities not locked it, oh, okay. uh, it's
3: it's it's a congregate in other words it's people who live in an apartment building normally two to a bedroom uh, with 24-hour staffing okay. and with three meals a day served uh, and with m- uh, medication management administration
2: but a higher level of services than lower
3: than skilled nursing but higher than permanent supportive housing
2: okay, okay. Skilled nursing. I think Steve Lopez was writing an article about the the subject of the movie The Soloist, who he went to visit recently. Who is in is that a skilled nursing program that uh, is a is a walk?
3: Based on on Steve's description, it's like you know another is somewhere. It's it's like a step in between those two. Okay, like, and now you are getting def- a real the sense the of the street right now. Yeah. The exactly. yes. <laughs> the, the definitions uh, always get murky, don't they?
2: Yes, they do. Doug, Ben, thank you so much for Thanks, guys. Uh, talking to us. Really interesting. Oh, and the lights just flickered. So you probably have to go run off to cover another story. <laughs> thank you for having us.
3: Thank
0: you.
2: Thanks for listening to LA Podcast. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. LA really Podcast.
0: LA really Podcast. Really podcast is going to have